stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. What's good, everybody? Hello! Hello! Welcome to The Long Road Home. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Emily. I'm Chad. We're here. This is it. We're doing it. It's another day in paradise. It really is. Yeah. It really is. You know what? You know what? It it is. Life is it like is a another box of day chocolates. in paradise. Yeah. The sun is out in Montana again this week. Yeah. For and now. so I've got my vitamin D, and that's all I need. Sometimes, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. It's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, it's uh, the end of January. It's coming. I'm sort of, you know, picking up. Yeah, the- you know, worst month <laughs> of the year is over, right, oh, everyone? Just the worst one. <laughs> it's been a hell of a Remember year. Remember when we all said that last year? Then January is here, and I, you know, I'm finally picking up the last pieces of my post-election depression slash armament, I mm-hmm. guess. And, you know, um, you're aware that the election ended in November. I am. Uh, you know, it's been a long year. <laughs> But, you know, I sat down for the first time this week and I started to meditate again. I'm going to start exercising again and I'm feeling myself in a way I haven't in a little while. It's kind of nice. You know what? It is nice. You know, yeah, it's it is nice. It's It's nice. It's nice. It's fine. I'm fine. fine. It's fine. fine. I'm fine. Anyway, guys, we I am honestly I am super excited about this episode. I don't know about you. It's something that I have. Like I used to like YouTube this stuff when I was like in high school and early college. Oh, absolutely! You know, just like staring at the screen at like three in the morning, like my god. <laughs> it just are we alone? Yeah, are we alone? How could we be though? We don't know. That's what we're talking about today, folks. It is, and we're just gonna you know dive right in. So let's go. What's I don't know what we've named this episode yet, or if we've decided on a name for this episode. But I thought that it'd be fun to share with our uh, listeners what the name of our shared. Google Doc is for this episode. Today. Yeah, tell him. Why no aliens? Why no aliens? Why no aliens? Let's find out why. Let's find out. In 2019, Didier Queloz, a Swiss physicist from the University of Cambridge, was named a co-winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of the first exoplanet orbiting a sun-like star. I also found out he is the first person to discover an exoplanet ever in 1995. Very cool. Yes, very cool. Super smart guy. That's so crazy that that just happened in 1995, and you think about how many we've already found since then. It's it's insane. It's insane, and we kind of get into that later. Okay, cool. Uh, just technology. Kalos, who calls himself a planet hunter, has said that his work has led him to become absolutely convinced that humans will detect alien life in the next 100 years. He is quoted as saying, I can't believe we are the only living entity in the whole universe. There's just way too many planets, way too many stars. The chemistry that led to life has to happen elsewhere. His statement is, in a way, a response to a question that physicist Enrico Fermi first posed to his colleagues over lunch in 1950. Where is everybody? That's a good question. It absolutely is. For decades, astronomers and scientists across the globe have worked to send a message into the unimaginably large expanse that we call the universe. That message? We are here. From SETI to exoplanet discovery to the dawn of of the techno signature we have been looking for signs that somewhere out there is some form of intelligent life as of today the evidence for this is scant at best even as top diplomats begin to come out of the woodwork and claim their existence aliens simply haven't shown themselves to us yet on this episode we're tackling the same question posed by fermi all those decades ago and asking why haven't we had contact with aliens 
Now, we could do a deep dive into how exactly we are looking for aliens, but that is an entire episode into itself. What we're going to be doing now is going over some of the different theories that have been posed to answer why exactly nobody seems to want to talk to us. Aww. Yeah, it's not ideal, I guess. We might be like the kid in the corner of the cafeteria. I was going to just say the yeah. kid in the corner. That's exactly what I pictured. But he's not just a nice humanity. kid. He's the kind of kid that like is stabbing something You're with his pencil. Right. He's got a dead rat in his backpack. Yeah, he's got like a, a bird's head in his pocket, you oh, know? Oh, right. He's troubled. He doesn't want to talk to you. He just needs help, you yes. know, before finding so, a someone does. Someone needs to come in contact with him, but it might be a therapist it's initially. It's time for an interference. Yes, an yeah. interference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so before we begin, we're going to give you our sources. We have an article from businessinsider.com, Wikipedia, WashingtonPost.com, Mason.gmu.edu, BigThink.com, and SETI.org. We also have something from Astronomy.com, Plato.Stanford.edu, and that's it. And if you want the direct links to the things we've used for this episode, you can join our Discord. It's totally free, and you can just hop in and see these cool links and look at them for yourself. Some of them are actually, I mean, really, really cool this time. I really dove deep into one of them and spent a lot of time there. But those are our sources. Come join our Discord for direct links to the exact articles that we found. Okay, um, go ahead. Okay, so first, why even discuss this? Yeah, why? 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 Tell us. Mathematically, there are many reasons to be optimistic that somewhere out there, somewhere out there. <laughs> no, you do. It's a different context, but yeah. In the pale moonlight. I came here to talk. I didn't come to cry. <laughs> Can we please continue? Okay. Somewhere out there, someone is doing the same thing we are. Obviously, the fact that there has been no contact could be seen as damnable evidence by the skeptic. But consider this. There are billions of stars in the Milky Way similar to the sun. There is a high probability that some of these stars have Earth-like planets. Many of these stars, and hence their planets, are much older than the sun. If the Earth is typical, some may have developed intelligent life long ago. Some of these civilizations may have developed interstellar travel, a step humans are investigating now. Even at the slow pace of currently envisioned interstellar travel, the Milky Way galaxy could be completely traversed in a few million years. And since many of the stars, similar to the sun, are billions of years older, the Earth should have been already visited by extraterrestrial civilizations, or at least their probes. However, there is no convincing evidence that this has happened. Let's start by going over two of the driving forces in the search for alien life. First, the Fermi Paradox. Like we said earlier, Enrico Fermi, surrounded by several colleagues discussing recent UFO sightings, blurted out, quote, But where is everybody? In reference to the idea of alien life. Where is everybody? Where is everybody? Ah! Ah! And then all those scientists kept, went back to their PB&Js. And then it was just like, you just it was, everyone went silent. Like, here, here's how it went. Hold on, sorry. Mumble, 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 mumble. But where is everybody? Clink. Clink, clink. clink. <laughs> just back to eating. <laughs> but like everyone just went silent. Yeah. Just... Apparently everyone laughed at it. I'm not, I guess some, it was like not, he didn't really necessarily say aliens, but they were talking about UFOs that had been recently cited. And I guess the topic of like alien life came up and he sort of shouted this in the middle of the conversation they were all having. Oh, really? Like, he yeah. literally did just shout it out. That's yeah. really funny. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine, like, do you think they were laughing at him or with him, though? 
I, they were probably all half drunk on wine. I think they're having a good time. Uh, scientist convention? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it's a okay. party. They get to, I mean, really. You, I know. You, you, you would know. Yeah, you let it loose at the conventions. Yeah. It's time to drink all those scientist travels away. Drink that white trench coat right off your body. <laughs> oh, no. Lab coat. That's <laughs> a lab coat. Just pasty Not a white. trench coat. <laughs> lab uh, coat. Yeah. Get that trench coat off. One of those colleagues, Herbert York, wrote later that Fermi, quote, followed up with a series of calculations on the probability of Earth-like planets, the probability of life given an Earth, the probability of humans given life, the likely rise in duration of high technology, and so on. He concluded on the basis of such calculations that we ought to have been visited long ago and many times over. Okay, y'all ready for some math? This is some cool math. It's cool math. It is. It's cool math. math. (laughs) It's just math. I always had a love-hate thing with math. I did, too. Yeah. You know what? I did, too. I fucking loved algebra. Algebra 1, calculus. algebra 2, just like... Yeah. Calculus? No. I like brain. calculus so much, I took That's it twice. That's we're so... Oh. <laughs> I really... No, but I, I got a C the first time, and I was like, I could do better than that. Nope. Still a C. Oh, <laughs> I got no. the same exact grade. <laughs> you literally took it twice. I did. Yeah. Um, but that's why we're so good for each other. We just... I'm algebra, you're calculus. Mm-hmm. I'm peas in a pod. Yeah, I was gonna say more things, but then. Oh, okay. Well, continue, <laughs> continue. Say more nice things. I'm share. You're sunny. <laughs> oh, I hit oh, a tree and die. That's no. <sighs> Sorry, that's not a good one. Delete, delete, just delete the whole thing. I don't. Okay. I started it thinking I could come up with something funny, and then I just lost it. And that's then pretty. I that's dark you. humor. It is. You're not wrong. Someone out there's chortling. Oh, anyway. Yes. Ah, <laughs> Sonny. Chad's <laughs> <laughs> gonna die. Yeah, great. Um, the first aspect. Okay, sorry. Mm, math, math time. Let's do math. The first aspect of the Fermi paradox is a function of the scale or the large numbers involved. There are an estimated two hundred to four hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, or two to four times ten to the eleventh. Right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And 70 sextillion, or 7 by 10 to the 22nd, in the op- in the observable universe. Lots of numbers. numbers. Lots of numbers. stars. Even if intelligent life occurs on only a minuscule percentage of planets around these stars, there might still be a great number of extant, or living, civilizations. And if the percentage were high enough, it would produce a significant number of extant civilizations in the Milky Way. This assumes the mediocrity principle by which the Earth is a, t- quote, typical planet. Yeah, statistically, we are average. Um, that is one of the saddest things I learned in my biology class is when my professor said, statistically, all of you are just about the same. It really dealt a blow to, I think, everyone's ego in the class. Uh, but You I know just, what? That's good. It That's is. Good. Everyone needed that. We all need yeah, a good blow the to the ego. The fear that men put into me about cancer. <laughs> I had I I was like gripping my desk when he was talking about. It. He's just like, yeah, one day you could just randomly uh, your genes could uh, you know turn off the wrong thing and you get cancer. And it was he was so casual about it. Anyway, scientists, man, <laughs> they don't care about <laughs> your feelings. They don't. They're just here for the facts. Yes. 
So I want to stop here and try to give our listeners a better idea at just how large these numbers that we're talking about actually are. Yeah, I just threw a lot of numbers at you. Yeah, uh, something that we have a really hard time with as humans is recognizing large sums as more than just large sums. I think we tend to think of one billion and one trillion as fairly close to one another, and in a sense, they are if you're comparing apples to electrons. Oof. Yeah. Uh, Scientist <laughs> humor for you. <laughs> yeah. Just cold and hard. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's use... The, I like to use seconds when I talk about stuff like this and I haven't ever really explained this to him but it's more for me <laughs> that helps me realize just how big these numbers are yeah no definitely um, I love this an- so, analogy analogy yeah this example it's I think it's relatable because uh, everyone deals with time so one million seconds is equal to 11 days 13 hours 46 minutes and 40 seconds so it's that's not a lot really it's no. not it's a, it's a week and a half we'll be here for another one million seconds. yeah hopefully uh <laughs> knock on wood <laughs> uh but one billion seconds is equal to 31.69 years Oof. so that's the difference between a million and a billion one trillion seconds is equal to 31,709.79 years so million billion trillion you like i mean oftentimes i mean i would I think a lot of people assume those numbers are fairly close. You just hear it and you don't really process how much bigger it is. Um, so because it's really unfathomable. It is. It's a. It's we. Our brains can't really comprehend numbers and time in that way. So with each second representing a planet, it's a little easier to see just how big the numbers they are dealing with are. One trillion has twelve zeros behind the one, so that would be like ten to the twelfth. While a sextillion has twenty-two zeros. So the amount of stars in the universe is almost impossible to comprehend with our monkey minds. <laughs> really and truly. Monkey brain. That's such a big number. Does not compute. Yeah. That's how exponents work also, which I really uh, honestly didn't know a whole lot about until I went back to school again, that the to the, the power is just the decimal continues to move to the right. And if it's negative power, it moves to the left. Yeah. I really wish they had explained it to me when I was in school. Yeah. That so way. they didn't, they sure didn't make it sound that easy back <laughs> in my day. These numbers are huge though. They're, they're massive. They're very, very hard to fathom that the fact that there are that many stars in the universe. It's crazy to me. It's yeah. absolutely crazy to me. It's, it's like literally insane. Yeah. <laughs> the second aspect of the Fermi paradox is the argument of probability. Given intelligent life's ability to overcome scarcity and its tendency to colonize new habitats, it seems possible that at least some civilizations would be technologically advanced, seek out new resources in space, and colonize their own star system, and subsequently surrounding star systems. Since there is no significant evidence on Earth or elsewhere in the known universe of other intelligent life after 13.8 billion years of the universe's history, there's a conflict requiring a resolution. Some examples of possible resolutions are that intelligent life is rarer than we think, that our assumptions about the general development or behavior of intelligent species are flawed, or, more radically, that our current scientific understanding of the nature of the universe itself is quite incomplete. So that's the Fermi paradox. Those resolutions are all kind of equally sad and terrifying. The fact that maybe we don't really understand physics in the way that we think we do. Yeah. Or the fact that we are truly alone. Both of those things are like a little sad and scary to me. Well, yeah, there's an element of hope when we think, at least for me, when I think about life on other planets. There's definitely negative consequences or possible negative outcomes of there being life on other planets. But at the same time, it's almost like we're not in this thing called life alone. You yeah. know, there's yeah. other there's other beings out there and we're just going to we're going to find each other and get through it. 
together. It's going to be love. Gonna yeah. Be love at first sight. Love oh. will conquer all. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that but later. But maybe we're alone. Uh, but also maybe, maybe we're just alone. Yeah, or maybe there's uh, people watching us. So What? Okay. I mean, I know that theory. I was just, it was <laughs> yeah, a yeah. sound effect moment. It yes, kind of yes. made it sound like I didn't know, but I, I know. She knows. She's read, <laughs> she's read this text. Yes. Um, the other chunky part of this puzzle is an equation formulated by Frank Drake in 1961 that generally goes hand in hand with the Fermi paradox. Drake created this in an attempt to find a systematic means to evaluate the numerous possibilities involved in the existence of alien life. It's now known as the Drake Equation and consists of several variables, such as the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for organic life and the fraction of those suitable planets whereon organic life actually appears. There are seven of these variables, so go check it out for yourself sometime. It's uh, it's a cool equation. Yeah, I have an image for it. Maybe I'll post it. Yeah. Or maybe I'll post it to the Discord. Yeah, come look at it. Yeah, make yeah, you guys it. join us. Please. So the these variable uh, a variable in math, if you like, just haven't taken math in a while, is basically an empty slot that you can fill in with any number. These variables try to solve for n, or the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. It has been used by both believers and non-believers to try and prove that their beliefs are correct. The first scientific meeting on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, which had 10 attendees including Frank Drake and Carl Sagan, speculated that the number of civilizations was between 1,000 and 100 million in the Milky Way. On the other end of the spectrum, Frank Tipler and John D. Barrow used pessimistic numbers and speculated that the average number of civilizations in a galaxy is much less than one. So literally... You plug in numbers and you see what comes out. Some people are on the high end, some are on the low. Right. It just depends on what you think the variables are. And the variables exactly. are an unknown. Very unknown. Exactly. So, and that's the problem with the equation. Uh, you it, could just make it work for you? It kind of, yeah. And it's all it's all hypothetical. Right. We're not going to call it theoretical because a theory is affirmed and can is be seen in numerous tests. It's so, speculative. Yeah. It's specu that's a, I think that's a better way to put it. It seems that... Like I said, almost all the arguments involving this equation suffer from what's called the overconfidence effect, a common error of probabilistic reasoning about low probability events by guessing specific numbers for likelihood of events whose mechanism is not yet understood. Yeah, we're just throwing darts at a wall. Yeah, exactly. And the biggest thing that really isn't understood is what's called, uh, one of the big things is called abiogenesis, mm. in which a living life is created from non-living matter. Which has been proven to occur. Just to clarify, it's been proven that it can occur, but we're not aware of the rate that it can occur. Uh, I'm not. I'm or, not like. I'm not like a, an expert on it. I don't really understand like the it, process. That's what of, we're saying. Right? Basically, that, like we don't know. We don't know the rate of, or the the, the speed, the probability. Yeah, we don't understand. Like, is it how likely is it that's going to happen? Right. But yeah. Two scientists named Stanley Miller and Harold Ure in the 50s performed an experiment that demonstrated how these organic molecules could spontaneously form from inorganic stuff. Whoa. So non-living stuff producing living things. They basically put in, uh, it was a, it was sealed, right? There were two large, what you would call like beakers, I guess. And they were filled with methane, ammonia, and hydrogen, as well as water vapor. And those formed simple organic monomers such as amino acids. Uh, that was wow. cycled through an apparatus that delivered electricity to the mixture. So like lightning, <gasps> sparks, and like stuff, Frankenstein. right? Frankenstein! Yeah. And so after one week, it was found that about 10 to 15% of the carbon in the system was in the form of a racemic mixture 
of organic compounds, including amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, which make us. Whoa. Yeah. Um, also, just to clarify, I'm aware that um, the doctor was named Frankenstein and the monster was just the monster. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, we all. Because I said like Frankenstein, yes. but I mean like Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. Yes. It's a great anyway, book. Anyway, anyway, Mary Shelley, read I it. I just wanted to, I know things. Um, so, but yeah, so it's been proven that uh, amino acids and things that can potentially produce a living organism can be made in at least, uh, you know, a scientific experiment, which is, to me, is amazing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And this was done it's in nuts. the 50s? Yeah. Like, yeah. Ha, ha, but. You know, really, really cool say. fact. I'm not uh, going to be antagonistic. Really cool fact. What's up? Uh, really cool fact. One of my professors at Montana State actually has one of their uh, pieces of equipment. Whoa. One of the things they use to make them in his lab. He just keeps it. He, I don't remember how he got it, but uh, which professor? Doctor Willie. Yeah, of course it was Doctor cool Willie. He's such Shout a cool out guy. Doctor Willie, uh, super cool guy. But uh, yeah, he's he just told us about it and how he has it, and I guess he knew he worked with one of their graduate students or something. Super cool. Wow. Totally off tangent, but anywho. Anywho. We know it can happen, but we don't understand the probability at which it could happen. Yes. And that it is life. Yes, it is life. It's <laughs> life, yes. <laughs> this, those things are life. Uh, so an analysis that takes into account some of the uncertainty associated with this lack of understanding has been carried out by some other scientists, Anders Sonberg, Eric Drexler, and Toby Ord, that suggests a substantial ex-ante probability of there being no other intelligent life in our observable universe. But what do they know? Bunch of negative Nancys. Yeah, get the fuck out of here, you pessimist. But, you know, this goes back to, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He has stated, like, he doesn't believe in aliens. He can't believe in aliens because of his profession. He's an astronomer. Right. It's like, I mean, if the the facts aren't there, it's it's good to, I guess, be skeptical yes. in that way. I not I'm not necessarily in that camp, but I, it's cool that they're sticking to their guns. Yeah, no, it's it's good to have like scientific authority that's unbiased. Yes, definitely. I think so. But I I think like those guys were manipulating the equation just as much as the other guys were. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you no, if you yeah. if you come out with there's zero percent chance of aliens it's like you literally just did the same thing but the opposite direction that the guys that were saying there's all the aliens. Did. Yeah. I just no, you're right. Really, really. No, I brought it down in super layman's terms. Only but. a Sith deals in absolutes. Yes, exactly. That's a Star Wars reference. <laughs> it's a <laughs> well, Star no, Wars. Tyson, Tyson is it a Sith? No, he's not. He seems like a wonderful person. Well, he's a great guy. Yeah, he seems like it. And he, uh, oh, but he's had some troubles. He's had some troubles. There's some things that we kind of just deleted about him. Yeah. Well, that woman kind of like backed off, right? Is this a dangerous conversation? Yes. Okay, Moving let's move on. on. Okay, so this is the numbers part that we were talking about earlier. Okay, no Even worries. more numbers. Yeah, you spit them ditches. Hell yeah, I'm going to spit them. S- spit them all over this mic. Yeah. I'm going to breathe this air, feel them germs. Oh, it's hot. So now we have a very slight idea of why exactly there may be life, even though those other people said there might not be. But if there is life, why isn't there proof that they've contacted us? There exactly. T- yeah. Um, there are tons of explanations for this, but we picked a few of our favorites to talk about today. So, let's start. No, oh, you thought we started? We yeah. haven't started. We're just now starting. Now the title card is playing. Welcome to the long road home. Okay. Um, shall I? No, me. This is the numbers part. Oh, numbers. Yeah, numbers. Victim digits. 
<laughs> Staying. Yeah, you keep that. All right, all right, keep, keep that. Keep that snort. All right. That's authenticity. So, <laughs> the first theory we're going to talk about today is the Great Filter. Originally hypothesized by Robert Hansen, the premise of the Great Filter is that there are at least nine steps that are needed in order to go from a planet revolving around a sun to off-planet colonizing by a species. They are, one, the organic material and planets are in the right star system, including organics and potential, potentially habitable planets. Two, there are reproductive molecules that form, like RNA. Right. Uh, simpler than DNA, can still replicate. This... These molecules will lead to simple or prokaryotic single cell life and ultimately Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, prokaryotic. It's been like 10 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> since I heard that word. It's a uh, yeah. Okay, so that's an exaggeration because I'm not that old, but it's been like 7. Yeah, it's been a couple, right? It's been a few. Um, I yeah. It is. Do you I, remember that word from high school in, yeah. in biology? I took two biology classes last year, so this is widely... Actually, this is sort of a bigger deal also in uh, ecology as well. Continue. Um, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt. I was just like... Uh, my brain was like... <gasps> yeah, it's okay. I remember. <laughs> I remember. So the prokaryotic life ultimately leads to eukaryotic or complex single-cell life. There also must be sexual reproduction and eventually... Wow. And eventually multi-cell life. There are still three steps. Bear with I'm us. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. So if you get to multi-cell life and you clear those uh, all those other steps, you head towards tool-using animals with intelligence. Eventually, you get to step eight, a civilization advancing towards the potential for a colonization explosion, which is where we are now. Right. We're just like... Yeah. We're just building, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And finally, there is colonization explosion. We are off-planet and we are developing in other places. So the Great Filter states that one of these steps is difficult enough that virtually no species can clear it and move on to the next. In the terms of the Fermi Paradox, this could mean a failure in any of the steps, or maybe some disaster led to the destruction of a species before the filters could be passed through. This could have been happening for billions of years with repeated failures, preventing any sort of intelligent life anywhere else in the universe. We could simply be the ones who, evolutionarily speaking, rolled snake eyes and made it to where we are today. And that by no means guarantees that we'll ever make it any further. Hansen's ideas themselves are online and super interesting to look at. His paper does an amazing job at describing just how these steps can take place and how our species and planet has underwent them. I want to read his breakdown of just how he believes these steps occur sort of in humans because i i really do i think this is super fascinating the way he explains it is really makes sense to me let's do it okay so this from until i say in quote this is all hansen it turns out that the very idea that a significant portion of the great filter might reside in our past evolutionary steps and has important implications which can aid us in evaluating this hypothesis first let us distinguish between two different kinds of evolutionary steps let a discrete evolutionary step be one which must succeed within certain a short time period. Failure then implies failure forever after. So if you miss that, if you don't get through that filter, you're done. No more chances. Uh, for example, filtered out. Yeah, you're filtered. 
For example, if a certain type of solar system is required, then success here can only happen when the solar system forms. In contrast, let a trial and error step be something like search across a mostly flat fitness landscape, where failure today does not much affect the chances for success tomorrow. So trial and error means that if, you, if you're not able to pass through it, you bounce off, you get to try again. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. The main great filter implications are regarding trial and error type steps. Consider a situation where a certain number of trial and error steps must be completed in a certain order within a certain total time window. That is, for each step there is some constant probability per unit time of completing that step given that the previous step has been completed. If the probability of completing all the steps within the time window is low, then it turns out that for the cases where all steps are in fact completed, the average time to complete each hard step is unrelated to how hard that step is. Oh, okay. And we're, here, let, let's get let's through it a little that further. Down. Yeah. It's an example here. Beautiful. Um, for example, say you have one hour to pick five locks by trial and error. Locks with one, two, three, four, and five dials. Each dial has 10 numbers on it. So you have a lock with five dials, and each dial has 10 numbers. No, you have... You have... Five locks. No, 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 no. There's listen, listen. No, 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 listen. You start out with each set of locks. So you have one lock with 10 numbers, two you locks with 10 numbers, three locks with 10 numbers, four locks with 10 numbers, five locks with 10 numbers. I, I think that's what it's saying. You have one hour to pick five locks. Locks with one, two, three, four, and five dials. So each lock has, so one lock has one dial. Yes. One, one, the next lock has two yeah, dials. Yeah, that's what I was trying to the say. I'm sorry. The next lock has three yeah. dials. The uh -huh. next lock has four dials. And yes. then the last one has five dials. And yes. each dial has ten numbers. Yes. Okay. We're on it. So we've got our dials. The expected time to pick each lock is 0 .01, 0 .1, 1, 10, and 100 hours, respectively. Understood. Because of the number of dials. Yes. Then, just looking at those rare cases where you do pick all five locks in the hour, the average time to pick the first lock would be 0 .0096 and 0 .075 hours, respectively, close to the usual expected times that we mentioned right before this. The average time to pick the third lock, however, would be 0.2 hours, and the average time for the other two locks and the average time left over at the end would be 0.24 hours. That is, conditional on success, all the hard steps, no matter how hard, take about the same time, while easy steps take about the normal amount of expected time. All, and all these step durations, and the time left over, are roughly exponentially distributed. This is the interesting part to me, with a standard deviation of at least 76% of the mean. We can apply this model to the evolution of life on Earth by examining the fossil record for roughly equal spaced apparent major innovations. Such an analysis can complement other attempts to find hard steps by intrinsic difficulty, necessity, and uniqueness in evolutionary history, such as attempted in, he references another paper. The fossil record shows about five roughly equal periods between major evolutionary changes since the Earth was formed. Specifically, the earliest known clear fossils of simple single-cell life appear 0.9 billion years after the Earth cooled, though other evidence suggests life after only 0.5 billion years. The earliest known large, complex single-cell fossils then appear about 2 billion years after this early evidence. 0.8 billion years later, the tempo of evolution picked up dramatically, perhaps with the invention of sex and Bountical. then... <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and then 0.5 billion years later, we see the first substantial fossils of multicellular life. Finally, 0.6 billion more years brings us to where we are today. Understood. So it kind of accelerates. It becomes exponential. It's so cool. Yeah. Um. So and that's what's crazy because you can you think about looking at it in a graph. You see, you got these five data points, and it becomes exponential. You would assume the harder or the simpler steps towards the bottom, just life bouncing in, they take long. They're easier, but they seem to take an expected amount of time. Right. And then as things, the harder steps seem to be going faster, but there's no way to tell which one which ones are the hard ones after a certain point because it's just going up exponentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he kind of at the end he says while these periods are not exactly equal, they are roughly consistent with the roughly exponential distribution of actual durations between hard steps predicted by the above model of trial and error steps. So he basically took the fossil record and used it to prove his theory. His theory of evolution. is that not fucking awesome? That's and really then, cool. What's really cool okay. is you can take an exponential equation. And take the log of it, and you get a line in exponents of 100. So you can kind of do the same thing, which is really, to me, it's really cool. I don't know. It's, it's super su- cool. I, I, I think that's, I'm sorry. I think I was science just, is fucking I awesome. I was blankly staring at you because I was trying to visualize what you had just said. Not because I didn't think that it was cool, but because I was just going, what? Did yeah, the log of an exponent is is always linear, I guess. Which, I don't know why that, like, the fact that evolution, this this progression through the filters is linear. That's what it's saying. How cool is that? That's very cool. It's a linear progression that you can do, or you might just die. I don't know. It's just like the, the fact that that the worked the way that he expected it to blew me away. So, maybe we're going to get to it. So then are we thinking then that like if humans like missed their shot, then we're just moving exponentially away from like the target? No, he never. Or like, I, I like mean, parallel to like this last step. I know he himself did. I don't think that he theorized that we missed the step. But isn't that what other people kind of say? Is like, or like we're never going to get to that last one. So kind of we are exponentially just on this track. I guess it depends we're on. Gonna get <laughs> we have to get real nerdy. I guess it depends on what the axes are because if you've got right. if you've got y in right. terms of Hang time. On. Hey, right. So that's what I was saying was that we were running parallel to the axes instead well, of yeah, crossing it. Yeah, we're not it. we're not necessarily parallel. We're still on the line, but the line just keeps going until it reaches the next point. So we're exponentially moving forward because time is moving. Or, yeah, no, that's not right. What time would be on the x axis? This is getting completely time out of would head. be on the x axis, yeah. And Evolution that, would be on the y yes. axis, so axis. we're, we're but moving we're like not gonna. We, if we didn't hit the filter, we would continue. Oh, but this is the trial and error formula, yes. yeah, not the other theory saying that we would have been filtered out, yeah. I, no. That's what I was trying to relate those two theories, but they're not, yeah, they're totally two separate entities, understood, yes. Um, so anyway, from what I can tell, Hansen believes, and there's so much more to this paper. I'm going to read it all. I think it was really interesting to me. You can read it to me tonight before bed. Okay. Cause I bet you it'll put it's me to sleep. sleep. <laughs> Hansen believes that there are some steps that take more time, although that doesn't necessarily mean they're harder. Uh, and like I said, this shit is just fucking wild to me. And that's just the theory. The thought that we as humanity underwent who knows how many successes and failures to get where we are today is absolutely mind-boggling to me. It's also terrifying that, once again, there's absolutely no guarantee we aren't going to destroy ourselves before we pass through yet another great filter that may allow us to do the investigating instead of the waiting. Right. Yeah, that that line can stop at any point. That's the tricky bit. And that's when you become 
the other the other part of what he's talking about. Like you are one of them until you aren't, right. basically. Um, and that's I mean, yeah, we just we don't know if we're ever going to get past that next point. Yeah, we don't know. No, we don't. Uh, anyway, why would we know? <laughs> why would I? Know? I'm just monkey. <laughs> I'm just simply monkey. Monk. Anywho, that is the great filter, and that was very interesting to me. And that the last equation is—I don't know—it was really cool to see the application of his theory into the fossil record. Oh, definitely. Cool. Yeah, like make it tangible. Yeah, yeah. I hope everyone could bear with me through that. I thought it was really interesting. Look that was at my some graphs online. That was my science side. You can look at them while you listen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just Google it. It's Google really it. cool. A lot of videos Guys, that cool explain what I did with cool graphics. Go learn things. Yeah. That's why we're here. Exactly. Every okay. day. Okay, so let's move on to the next theory. A little theory um, called the Galactic Zoo. Yeah. Which just immediately instills fear into my heart. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. This is a very Atlantean idea because of the idea behind it. <laughs> Sorry, that's like... <laughs> <laughs> just like... Sorry, I don't know It makes that. sense. It's just... God, I, I, I really went, I really nerded out on this. <laughs> I love it. I I I'm just as maybe the favorite. Besides I loved, Nancy Morgan, I, I love the script. If I hadn't have been in as many meetings as I had been today, I would have went. Yeah. I would have been like, falls to the wall. I, yeah, I love this. <laughs> just, come on, just do it. It I'm makes sorry. sense. It makes sense. I'm sorry. <laughs> um... <laughs> This is a very Atlantean idea. If you recall our discussion in a previous Missing 411 episode, we talk about the competing philosophies between the Lemurians and the Atlanteans regarding humanity. Lemuria wanted to help progress society. Obviously, that didn't happen, or we'd all be rolling around on some sort of Healy-style board and floating around in jetpacks. Oh, oh wait. Me. Wait, maybe they did help. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Oh, no! Because of those boards with the we big wheel. the quote-unquote hoverboards. I'm still mad about that. I'm still mad that th that shit was called hoverboards. It's not hovering. They lied to us. Yeah, And they then did. we just accepted it. Blatantly. And then they all caught on fire. I'm talking about the uh, the wheel with the platform on both sides. You ride it like a skateboard and it just zip zooms. Cyberpunk. Yeah, that too. <laughs> I guess I'm triggered. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I know hover, where that came from. Hoverboards are in your brain. They're living really there rent free. Just unleashed some rage that I didn't know was sitting in my heart today. Atlantis, on the other hand, wanted only to observe and watch humanity, leaving its hand out of the affairs of the monkey. In 1973, MIT radio astronomer John Ball published a pa published a paper in which he suggested a very Atlantean idea itself. He hypothesized that the lack of success in uncovering cosmic company wasn't due to a lack of aliens. It was because these otherworldly sentients have agreed to a hands-off policy. They've kept their distance, not because we're imperfect, but because of our right to pursue our own destiny. Diversity is something that everyone in the cosmos is assumed to value, so life-bearing worlds should be left to their own evolutionary development. Ball also proposed that we may live in a metaphorical zoo a kind of cosmic Eden. The aliens of the galaxy have somehow arranged things so that our planet is shielded from them by one-way bars. They can observe us, but we can't observe them. Ooh. Yeah, everyone's in on the joke but us. So it's just like one giant episode of Truman Show. Yeah, exactly. I think of the, uh, oh God, what was that show that Rick and Morty did? 
Solar opposites. Solar opposites. It reminds me very much of that, the wall that they had. You know, that was a great. It was, was amazing. Was, I was very pleased with that. That subplot was killer. It was killer. <laughs> oh. Um, Mwah. <laughs> well decadent. done. Well done. Yeah. Way to go, Dan Harmon. So, <laughs> this, of course, perpetuates the idea that maybe we are as important as we think we are. At least, that's what they want us to believe. The thought of a galactic federation of aliens watching its high and mighty rats war and worship and take butt pics all while eating some sort of living popcorn organism really makes you think. It does, and you want them to think it's all about them, right? Because otherwise they're not going to perform. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we just took that role and ran with it. Yeah, we did. We were like, yeah, fuckers, it is all about us. This is our galaxy. Yeah, we got the Space Force We now. got the Space Force now. That's exactly what I was going to say. And all of it, all of it. <laughs> they got a real, real silly, chuckle out of that. Humans. Yeah. What will they think of next? Although it's a bit forced, this idea does help justify the idea that we should be sending signals into space. Douglas Vakich, the president of Medi International, a San Francisco-based organization, invoked the zoo hypothesis as a possible justification for broadcasting. After all, if the hypothesis is correct, then it's understandable why our efforts to find signals from space have been unsuccessful. We've been mindlessly pacing our earthly cage while the extraterrestrials maintain their distance and keep watch. But, as Vakich argues, um, this one-way scenario might be changed. If a zoo animal suddenly starts barking through the bars, saying, I'm here, and I think you're out there, those on the other side might respond. I do think that's a very interesting part of this idea. The fact that our technology has progressed to the point that an elementary school student could potentially send out a radio wave message into space would definitely elicit some sort of response at some point if it reached the right coordinates. What do you think the aliens would do if the animals they've been watching suddenly spoke? Would their response be kind and happy for us? Or would they seek to put us back into our place as their butt-pick-taken ant farm? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's uh, sort of the scary part, I guess, of the zoo hypothesis. Is What happens when we do reach out to the people who are watching us? What would we do? We'd shoot them! Immediately, oh, every every cryptid thing we've ever covered so far. Wait, wait, the first reaction. This is in pew, your pew. zoo. This is in your zoo. It's your space. And let's say, let's say, like one day, a dolphin says something. Do you think I, we wouldn't shoot the dolphin in the zoo if it said something? Not at first. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of my idea, and that's sort of actually, honestly, that is a perfect transition into the the last idea that we're going to talk about actually honestly if you think about it it'd be pretty fucked up what we do to that dolphin we would yeah. really really traumatize that bad. dolphin he would be on all these different world tours and everyone would just ignore what he said and just be like oh it's talking dolphin. Talkin dolphin and all the monkeys and would clap and clap and clap mm -hmm. <laughs> so then yeah what if we were the dolphin I exactly, and that's the I guess that's part of the point of this hypothesis now because when it when it when they developed it I guess we weren't really doing that at all like i don't think they even thought that there was the potential that we could do that one that day we could be trying to reach out at and least not contact in, with our captors yeah at least not to the extent that we're doing it now right mm -hmm. we'll see yeah we'll see but like i said honestly it's a perfect transition into our last theory okay uh it's a little more foreboding than the first two we've covered it's called the dark forest theory and boy is it dark it's not great from what I can tell, it's called that because the ideas are the basis for a Chinese science fiction novel called The Dark Forest by Liu Stitchin. 
This is how it's explained in the book. The universe is a dark forest. Every civilization is an armed hunter stalking through the trees like a ghost, gently pushing aside branches that block the path and trying to tread without sound. Even breathing is done with care. <sighs> the hunter has to be careful, because everywhere in the forest are stealthy hunters like him. If he finds another life, another hunter, angel, or a demon, a delicate infant to totter an old man, a fairy or demigod, there's only one thing he can do. Open fire and eliminate them. Ooh. Yeah, it's this is this is a spooky one. I know um, it's spooky. So essentially the dark forest theory is based on something called game theory, which I'd I'd heard of but I looked a little more into today. It's kinda crazy. So game theory is the study of the ways in which interacting choices of economic agents produce outcomes with respect to the preferences or utilities of those agents, where the outcomes in question might have been intended by absolutely none of them. It's an extremely interesting thought experiment that can be seen in social and political actions. This is, I mean, it's very interesting. It's super interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So I pulled this directly from the Stanford website. So I pulled this from the Stanford website because it's a great example of what game theory actually is. Quote, consider a soldier at the front, waiting with his comrades to repulse an enemy attack. It may occur to him that if the defense is likely to be successful, then it isn't very probable that his own personal contribution will be essential. But if he stays, he runs the risk of being killed or wounded, apparently for no point. On the other hand, if the enemy is going to win the battle, then his chances of death or injury are higher still, and now quite clearly to no point, since the line will be overwhelmed anyway. Based on this reasoning, it would appear that the soldier is better off running away regardless of who is going to win the battle. Of course, if all the soldiers reason this way, as they all apparently should since they're all in identical situations, then this will certainly bring about the outcome in which the battle is lost. Of course, this point, since it has occurred to us as analysts, can occur to the soldiers too. Does this give them a reason for staying at their post? Just the contrary. The greater the soldiers fear that the battle will be lost, the greater their incentive to get themselves out of harm's way, and the greater the soldiers' belief that the battle will be won without the need of any particular individual's contributions, the less reason they have to stay and fight. If each soldier anticipates this sort of reasoning on the part of the others, all will quickly reason themselves into a panic and their horrified commander will have a row on his hands before the enemy has even engaged. It's not an outcome that any brave warrior would want, but each individual action led to it. So, it's, so no one intended to lose the battle, but if everyone does the same thing, the battle is lost. Right. And so there's never an intention of losing the battle to begin with. And that's sort of what game theory is stating. And there's some That's uh, the game theory. Gotcha. Yeah, and so there's other great examples of this and like uh Cortez burned his ships when his arm his small army arrived in South America he did that to eliminate the idea that they can't escape right. and the only logical explanation for them was to push forward with the invasion right survival yeah exactly and he did the same thing and then you think about it in terms of the native americans that saw him do that and they say this man is crazy yeah. because now they are going to fight they must be really confident of, that they're going to win and then that sort of puts them in the situation that they the Cortez soldiers would have been in. And that's like, right. you can see it in real life. It's really, really cool. But game theory applies to the dark forest theory in this way. There's a belief that all life desires to stay alive, but there is no way to know if other life forms can or will destroy you if given a chance. Right. Lacking this assurance, the safest option for any species is to annihilate other life forms before they have a chance to do the same. 
So in the novel that we talked about, the, the Dark Forest, since all of their life forms are risk-averse and willing to do anything to save themselves, contact of any kind is dangerous, as it most assuredly would lead to the contacted race wiping out whoever was fool and foolish enough to give away their location. And you can look at this in the form of like a, a matrix or a tree. Basically, there's a potential for two groups to come in contact with one another, but typically the best move would be whoever comes into contact first would be to annihilate the other. Right. If they don't, then they're the complete mercy of the other group. And that's just how it, that's how it works. Right. And there you see like the outcome that no one is wanting, but because of the thought process behind it, it's what happens. It's like the only outcome. It's the only option. Mm -hmm. The scientist and futurist David Brins believes that this would explain why we haven't received any sort of transmission from another planet. He is quoted as saying, there is no need to struggle to suppress the elements of the Drake equation in order to explain the great silence, nor need we suggest that no eddies anywhere would bear the cost of interstellar travel. It need only happen once for the results of this scenario to become the equilibrium condition in the galaxy. That's the scariest part of this quote. All it takes is one civilization appearing and destroying the other, and then everyone's doing it. Uh... We would not have detected extraterrestrial radio traffic, nor would any eddies have ever settled on Earth, because all will, because all were killed shortly after discovering radio. Just for clarification, eddies actually means extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> I think the last few sentences are the scariest part to me, that it would only take this happening one single time for it to become the norm. I mean, honestly, it could have already happened. Maybe there is some monolithic alien life that through technological advancements has no problem making sure any other life form cannot surpass it. The scariest part is that while all these civilizations have hid from one another, we've been sending signal after signal to let them know exactly where we are. We literally just talked about an entire foundation dedicated yes. to we've sending out signals. We've been blasting signals. signals. Mm -hmm. um, We're really noisy. We're a really noisy We player. are. The article from BigThink.com put it very nicely. We've been screaming our existence to the cosmos for almost 100 years now. Any aliens within a 100 light year radius of us would be receiving a barrage of radio signals from our direction. Who knows when a probe may show up just outside our atmosphere taking a look at what exactly has been sending I Love Lucy reruns across the galaxy and deciding for themselves if they should allow us the chance to coexist. But for now, go get a hot cocoa, take a nice hot bath, and try to forget the existential dread we placed upon you because that's the end of this episode. That's it. That's all, folks. Yeah. We don't have any explanations for you, but there's some dark fucking theories. It's all, <gasps> I mean, yeah, it's, you just, we don't know. We don't know what you could know, happen. I will say, there, when looking into this, there are other, lots of other reasons, right? And we kind of talked about it at the top of the episode, but like, they could be watching us, they could be preparing to kill us, or they might just not exist at all. Yeah, I mean, it's so scary to think about, but, like, the biggest reason to show up is to invade. Why else do you come somewhere? Right. You need the resources. You need to harvest the resources, right? And so the last theory is maybe the realest to me. Really? <laughs> and, and it's either that or the the fact that the Great Filter also makes tons and tons of sense. I mean, obviously, it is, to me, the realest. I guess I take everything I said back. That one's the realest to me because it was applied and he could see it in evolutionary you know, layers yeah. in the earth. But um, I think those two are probably 
the most concrete and possible to me as to why we haven't ran into anybody. And you could even mix them together. We could pass through the great filter. And this was another idea that I read about shortly that maybe no one has done that yet. Maybe we are all in our own spheres and we cannot communicate with one another. But if we do, whoever makes it through the last filter first and begins colonization, it's called uh, first in, last out. They are the first people to do it and they decimate everyone else for resources, and they're the last ones that are doing it because they've decimated everyone else. Well, I mean, we do already have a space defense yeah, force. Exactly. Like, you know, we're not going we're, down. We're not, like, innocent by any means. Like, we're not, like, <laughs> No, we're not. Great. We're not heading down a good road. And I honestly, nothing in the past decade has led me to believe we are not heading towards anything other than a post-apocalyptic dystopia cyberpunk steampunk type world well you know what maybe universe listen to some blade runner oh that would be i'd be down to live in blade runner universe that'd be wild well i'll I'll just say that you guys can listen to our upcoming mini-sode to hear my my thoughts on this matter Yes, um, uh, we do have a mini-sode coming out. Which we is, do have a mini-sode coming out. Yeah, and, it'll be uh, next Monday. We we had some chats about aliens, and yeah, I like to take a more optimistic approach. She and does. think that maybe <laughs> maybe they want the best for us after all. Yeah. She keep, we didn't cover any of the like optimist, optimistic that's outcomes. Not I think the Great Filter is an optimistic look at what could possibly happen. There's a chance that we could make it. We've made it this far. Right, I think that I is amazing. I guess that theory doesn't necessarily go into what could happen if, after we get there. No. And that's not what this episode was about. This episode was just about why no aliens. But I'm saying that all of these kind of just lead you toward something not great is going to happen. But I like to think that maybe love. Love will find a way. Love will find a way. It, yeah. And I guess you I know, did say that earlier. You guys just lay down and close your eyes and try to think about uh, a machine Pulling out your blood to be harvested and used as energy for another species that is greater than you. <laughs> oh, no. Yay. Yay. That's, that's a great episode. I really fucking love the research on this one. I'm going to go back and read that the article that from Hansen. There's keep, paper. Keep There's going. a paper that's not an article. Just keep going deeper. Deeper and deeper. <laughs> but yeah, Minisode on Monday. Check it out. Yes. Uh, thank you guys so much for... I mean, I don't... How you going... Thank you guys so much for listening. Like we said, we're going to post the links to the actual uh, articles and places that we visited for this episode in our Discord. So check out Instagram, check out Twitter, join our Discord. It's totally free, and we uh, we post a lot of stuff there, including source links. So be sure to come and say hello. Well, the thought of us being alone is very scary to me, so I really do hope whatever is out there is just waiting for us to reach the next level. Yeah, and that's a very positive note to end on. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, we love all of our listeners. We appreciate you. We're going to be posting all of our source links over in our Discord. It's totally free, and we're trying to grow our community. So come join us there. We'd love to say hello. We're on there. I'm on there a lot, just waiting for someone to say something to me. I'm. Uh, we're both on there, though. Yeah. And we want Let's to chat. talk to you and tell us your stories. There's all sorts of different channels where you can post uh, links your own stories and you can see what we're up to and some of our listeners and the people that are on there do get a little bit of a advanced notice as to what's coming up so join us there it's totally free link on instagram and discord yeah let's chat about aliens and spirituality witchcraft and bigfoot whatever come on just chat let's do it it's all there 
Um, so you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod and on Facebook at the LRH pod. You can also reach us at Gmail. You can also reach us via email at the LRH show at gmail.com. Yeah, it's just another way for you to get us your stories, your comments, anything you'd like us to know. We're here and we're waiting for you. Oh, dude, we're on YouTube. Chad, tell yes. us about YouTube. We're on YouTube. I'm very slowly uploading our past episodes onto YouTube. So tell your friends that don't have Spotify or Apple for some strange reason. We're on there. They can turn us on while they're at work, while they're uh, climbing power lines, fixing windmills, digging coal. I don't care. Just listen. We're on there. Uh, episodes are being uploaded pretty much roughly every day for now until we reach the point where we can anymore and then we'll release these probably the day after they're released on uh most places where you listen to podcasts sounds like a solid plan yeah i think so so where they where can they find us on youtube is there like a no no you just the long road home yeah just search the long road home on youtube and we'll pop up we've got pretty much the same exact uh, social media icon as we do everywhere else so just look for that and look for uh, it and like and yes, subscribe please like and subscribe that's god uh, will help us i don't know how youtube works it's supposed to do something yeah y'all. please come come on. come on there come subscribe hit that like button smash right? it smash, smash it also if you want to support our podcast head over to patreon.com slash the lrh podcast we have three different tiers that you can sign up for and each one has its own special things that we're going to be doing with them. And it's going to give you access to some more time with us in the Discord for special things in the future, like maybe meditation sessions, maybe a book club. I think that would be really cool. Ooh, but club. yeah, once the interest is there and we've got a bunch of people just waiting to sink their teeth into us, we're going to do something really cool. So check us out on Patreon. I'm sorry. I'm just giggling because I pictured y'all biting us. <laughs> they got soft little nubby teeth. They got nubby teeth? I yeah. thought they were sinking their no, teeth it's like an old dog. Just like, all right. Oh, like, it's sweet. Oh, it's endearing. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks for the nibbles. Last thing. Please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. Every single one of those is important to us, and, and it's going to help us get on the new podcast page on Apple eventually. So please, tell your friends, tell your family, take their phones, leave a review, and let us know how much you enjoy this show. That's it. Okay, that's all the things, I think. That is everything. Okay. Yeah, we'll see you on Monday with our mini-sode, guys. And once again, thanks for joining us here on... The Long Road Home. Yeah, goodbye, everyone. Bye. See you later. Smell you later. (laughs) 